Hey, welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. I want to say this, I'm Tyler Orton. And I'm Haley Wooden. And we're going to talk to you about kind of the biggest news items that uh, struck us this week in uh, Business in Vancouver. And as well, uh, we, we've got a future, feature interview coming up, Haley. Who will we be talking to a little later on? We'll be featuring an interview with Mark Ellison. He is the former CEO and president of BC Hydro. He recently weighed in to the Site C debate. He's quite against it, and he made a submission to the BC Utilities Commission arguing that it was really a reckless and irresponsible decision on the part of the then BC Hydro Board of Directors and former BC government to give a final investment approval to the project. So we'll have a listen to that interview with him. He has a lot to say, and clearly someone who's obviously been on the inside of BC Hydro knows a lot about our energy needs in BC. A lot to say. I I think we're going to be seeing like a lot of kind of intersections between uh, business and government. Uh, We've got a new government uh, provincially in power here, so it's going to be fun. I I use the word fun loosely, but it's going to be uh, (laughs) fascinating to watch all this unfold. I I think the first thing uh, that we can bring up here is that uh, BC, uh, minimum wage is going up, Mm -hmm. but we already knew that. Uh, The BC Liberals had announced that earlier this year. And so the NDP, the BC NDP kind of had an announcement just to confirm that, yeah, it's still on the way in September. So, Haley, in case you were concerned, <laughs> yes, uh, minimum wage is going up to $11.35 an hour uh, beginning September. There you go. Or September changed. 15th, I believe. And I think what everyone's really waiting for is going to be the plan to roll out a $15 minimum wage, which is, of course, something the BCNDP campaigned on. Don't know when that deadline might be, but we're seeing the first increase of what's, I guess, going to be many if we're working our way up to $15. Yeah, there really no details on that announcement on $15 other than it's going to roll out sometime in 2021. Uh, but beyond that, we're going to have a, a fair wages commission that yeah. is going to figure out all the details there. I'm just a little surprised. I mean, you you would think that the NDP would be rolling out more details with these sorts of announcements. And I, I really think it, it, it's kind of an issue where uh, they're strained for time. You know, they're going to be hitting the legislature uh, in just a few weeks. And I, I think they need to figure out as much as they can. But details really lacking on all this. But more from a broader sp- perspective, I, I mean, $15 minimum wage, I think that'll be great if you're living in a jurisdiction such as, I don't know, um, Prince Rupert. Mm-hmm. I, I think people can uh, get by. That's certainly like kind of a living wage up there. You also wonder if does this really address kind of that issue of poverty that maybe we're having here in Metro Vancouver? Cost of living is very high, uh, coupled with kind of the we're known for not having like significantly like high wages compared with other parts of Canada either. No, having a living wage in Vancouver means having uh, upwards of $20 an hour. Yeah. I think even Kamloops, it's $17 an hour. So it's not just highly expensive and unaffordable greater Vancouver. It's even other cities throughout the province. So it maybe does some good, but you could make a case that, you know what, it's still a pittance for someone who's trying to make rent in the city of Vancouver. I'm also just thinking about my old childhood or, or whatever, but I don't have any recollections of ever actually working for minimum wage like every single Mm. job has been at least a little bit above minimum wage even if it's kind of those entry-level positions I had when I was much younger though so I think most people don't actually work for minimum wage if you look at the data 
yeah, most people aren't on minimum wage here. They're already getting more than that. But this is, I, I guess, aimed more perhaps like those kids still living with their parents. Um, mm-hmm. They'll get a lot of disposable income or hopefully a lot of them will uh, put it towards education or, or savings or what have you. I worked two jobs at minimum wage. Did you? Okay. One was in the restaurant industry. Obviously, Which, a lot of people can relate to that having makes a, lot a job of like that, yeah. right? And, and then you make tips over and above it. I didn't actually serve, so I did get cashed out a portion of tips. So, so supplemented my income. Wait on like that pool amount that yeah. uh, would come in at the end of the night. You had to awkwardly wait because each server uh, or bartender would cash you out separately. So you uh. had to sort of mill around and let them know that you're leaving. Sort of like a, a waiter does to guests to let them know, hey, I, I'm going to be leaving soon. Would you like to settle up now? <laughs> Always those awkward conversations. Did you just trust everybody who went on the honor system and uh, cash you out uh, the right amount? Or were you ever suspicious of any of your former coworkers that uh, maybe uh, maybe uh, they're holding back an extra 20 or, or, or five you know, I, well, I only got tipped out or cashed out a $20 bill once. Uh. It was normally you'd make overall 20, 30 bucks a night extra maybe in tip. Okay. I was making a lot. I was hostessing and then uh, bussing tables. But honestly, I will say this. I think a lot of the servers were pretty understanding and appreciative of sure. the work that the wait staff did. And you could certainly mess up their orders and tables if you wanted to. So I don't think anyone skipped too badly. Okay. That's good to hear. The other job was in uh, at a movie theater. So I think broadly sort of uh, entertainment retail jobs may be more likely to see some minimum wage employees. Yeah. But uh, you weren't getting any tips at the movie theater. You know what? We had a couple of regulars. Really? would tip me a dollar or two. (laughs) Yeah. Are they like old timey people sort of? They were older and they I, I don't know they were regulars they came in to see every new movie it was a two movie theater okay. in white rocks a sort of a smaller area and yeah they would just sometimes say keep the change and it was maybe wow. 25 cents or Ooh, a dollar 25 you mm. could buy a candy bar if you saved up several days worth wow. of chips. so yeah uh, yeah all that to say i mean things have come a long way i heard irene lansinger um head of the bc fed talking this week about how, you know, it, it's a start. But she said she was responding to comments about how this will impact small businesses. She said, you know, a lot of people who work for minimum wage, uh, you know, might work at McDonald's or Wendy's where they can arguably afford to pay people more, but yeah. small businesses. But I don't think a lot of small businesses do pay people minimum wage, especially if it's your first time job. I worked for smaller businesses too, and I got paid way above minimum wage. I uh, spoke to UBC uh, professor Mark Thompson all about this, and he's pointing out that there is kind of uh, this trend going on. This is something I also observed when I was in uh, Japan, but like uh, more automation when it comes to a lot of those fast food jobs. Mm. Like uh, when I was in Japan, I, I would go up to a machine and make my order there, I'd print out a ticket, and I'd just hand it over, and then they would give me my food directly. Um, I, that That would happen at tables. Like I would just take my ticket, wow. sit at a table, hand it to someone who would just go uh, bring the food over. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, look, we've got a minimum wage going up. I wonder with that uh, confluence of, uh, say, automation coming up in society, mm-hmm. if we're going to see the elimination of a lot of these jobs that I think a lot of young people um, relied on for many, many all decades. Yeah, and I think uh, pick any report. There have been a few out now, uh, including one from the uh, Brookfield Institute back east, talking about how automation will disrupt lower-paying jobs and sort of the most marginalized in society already. Yeah. They're low-paying jobs and they're hard 
labor-intensive jobs as well. Speaking of livability, though, I mean, how livable would you say a city like Vancouver is? You know what? I, I find it delightful. I understand why it's expensive. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would say it's very livable. But, you know, there's some improvements that could be made like any other city, right? For sure. And I think if we're talking about, you know, livability in terms of affordability, we struggle there. But overall, livability across uh, healthcare, stability, culture, education. Uh, Vancouver actually ranks third in the world. This is according to the Economist Intelligent Unit. They survey 140 cities every year. They judge it across those categories that I mentioned. And we're number three. Now we're a hair behind the top two spots, Melbourne, Australia, seven years running, being at the top of this list, followed by Vienna, Austria, then Vancouver. Then we actually have two other Canadian cities, Toronto is in fourth and Calgary tied for fifth. So we have a pretty good showing, Canada overall. Mm -hmm pretty good place to live when it comes to the basics you need. Um, I'll say this. The only city that you mentioned there that I've not visited is, is Melbourne. Um, one of the, I think the things that all these cities have in common is that maybe they could lose a, or use a little bit more grit, a little mm. bit more uh, character, uh, seedy kind of underside to it, you know, just I... That's what you look for in a city? Well, just I sometimes I think Vancouver can be a little sterile, um, a little uptight. And I that, that okay. to me is kind of one of the downfalls of the city. And look, I, I, I'm not saying like I, I think kind of the tragedy that's going on in the downtown east side is, is something that we want to spread throughout the city or anything like right. that. But I... I like not everything has to run like it was a a city built inside of like a a kit or anything like that. You know, kind of okay. You know, that, I I I stole that line from a, a comedian Mark Maron who came to Vancouver and he said, "Looks like this city was built from a kit," which <laughs> I, I kind of get. You know, well, and I mean, as far as cities go, Vancouver a, a newer one compared to some of the cities on a list too. So they maybe have the advantage of looking to see okay what worked, what didn't, and we're still building the city up. So I, I do get that comment. We don't have a lot of really old architecture yeah. like you might find in London, for example. But do you have a city that comes to mind that has the right amount of grit, but like safety and stability well, maybe? <laughs> maybe? Maybe grit's not the right word, but like character. Character, you know? yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, fun cities. Uh, Paris, I, I think sure. you, you have a delightful time there. It's a madhouse and that like it, the streets make no sense and get lost there easily. I good luck to anybody who's just trying to visit without a map. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I think that's a great example. I think Budapest is uh, a pretty cool one as well. Um, and there's like other like I, I, I like going to cities in Asia. Like I was in um, I, I mentioned Japan uh, walking around Osaka, you know, uh, that had like kind of a lot of character to it, even though you can look great metro system throughout to get around. But also, eh, yeah, I, you, you could see some uh, litter uh, on the, kind of the busy, uh, you know, uh, uh, streets. So it, to me, it has character. That, that's what I'm really yeah. looking for is character. Fair enough. Well, interestingly, I mean, these top three, we are, we're very, very close. And I'm sure you can sense similarities if anyone's traveled to all three. We tied on stability. We tied on healthcare. We tied on education. The difference, Melbourne and Vienna, they scored perfectly on infrastructure, whereas Vancouver got perfect marks on culture and environment. And of course, Melbourne and Vienna did fairly well in that category too. So Vancouver was bumped to third. But in infrastructure, telecommunications, 
public transportation and availability of good quality housing, three areas that we talk about frequently on the radio show as well as this podcast where not just Vancouver but Canada struggles with. Yeah. Vienna, very beautiful, kind of boring. Uh, that's all I is can it? say. It is. <laughs> okay. it's, it's just kind of, like, and it's lovely. It's, and you can go to nice restaurants and go to a nice bar, but it's, it's otherwise kind of boring. Okay. Know? And I think Vancouver's been accused of that in the past. We have been called the no fun city. Yeah. I mean, I, you can go to places and you can stay out all night. You can be going to great restaurants at 3 a.m. if you want. Vancouver does not have that scene. No, I was just thinking about I was talking to a guest uh, on the Roundhouse Radio show today. He's talking about um, kind of how, you know, the difference between like Quebec and, and British Columbia when it comes mm. to, you know, kind of the nightlife. And it's really like nobody starts going out to bars in Quebec until like, you know, 11 o'clock midnight. Yeah. That's the time that we start closing bars down in Vancouver is 11 o'clock midnight. Yeah, and like so, last call. You'd go to a bar and you wouldn't be able to get a drink. Yeah. Hands off. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That really kind of tells you maybe the big I, the differences, you know, between Vancouver and maybe other cities that are known for having more character. I've yet to visit Montreal, but that's high on my list. I've heard really good things. Um, a lot of like beautiful architecture too. Just a very different for the city. Well, on that note, uh, why don't we uh, take a little bit of a break? But we're going to be back with a guest. Uh, remind me again, Haley. Who are we speaking to? We'll have Mark Ellison on. He's the former CEO and president of BC Hydro. He's going to weigh in on Site C and why he says it's a reckless and irresponsible decision to move forward with the project. So we'll get to that. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600. That's 604-714-3600. Or check them out on their website at manningelliot.ca. Right now, we have a featured interview with Mark Ellison. He is the former CEO and president at BC Hydro. You'll hear him speaking with me and our co-host on BIV's radio show, Kirk LaPointe, all about Site C and why he says there never was nor is there a business case for greenlighting the project. Have a listen. Welcome back to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We are the daily business news program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. The former president and CEO of BC Hydro has called the final investment decision on Site C reckless and irresponsible on the part of the former BC Liberal government and BC Hydro's board of directors. Mark Ellison submitted a 22-page report to the BC Utilities Commission last week where he argues strongly for terminating the project. Now, the BCUC is currently reviewing the financial impact the project will have on BC ratepayers under three different scenarios, if it continues, if it gets suspended, or if construction is terminated. Mark Ellison joins us on the line now. Thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. So why was the final investment decision, in your words, reckless and irresponsible? Well, there never was a business case for the commencement of the Site C project, and there is, uh, regretfully, not a business case to support its continuation or postponement. Um, uh, I've argued in my brief to the Utilities Commission that uh, BC ratepayers, that is families and individuals and businesses, both commercial and, and industrial, 
cannot afford uh, the results of a uh, of a site C because the electricity rates that would result, uh, which we are already facing, uh, significant ones, will be astronomic. And uh, uh, I further argue that uh, we don't need the energy uh, associated with Site C. And if there was uh, some emergency in the short or long term that we did require additional uh, electricity supplies, I, uh, I mentioned there are a number of easier, more cost-effective uh, alternatives. The government of the day and the board of directors of the day obviously thought that there was a rationale for the project. Why do you think they proceeded? Well, um, I, get, I can only, since I, <laughs> I wasn't at the table, yeah, of course. and since the project wasn't referred as it normally would have been, to, for an independent analysis and investigation by the British Columbia Utilities Commission. The government uh, uh, chose not, not to do this. I can go, only go from my own personal experience, and I've been heavily involved for the last 40 years uh, in uh, Canadian utilities, so BC Hydro, uh, Manitoba Hydro, Ontario Hydro, and I've built, I've been involved in the building of, uh, of uh, hydro and non-hydro uh, large-scale uh, energy uh, projects. And from my analysis of what I've seen, uh, this has been a push for a project for which there was not a need, uh, both for uh, electricity in British Columbia or some external uh, demand from uh, export markets. And I haven't seen any uh, analysis or information to justify that kind of uh, decision that, that was made. You've, you and other critics of the project have accused the government and, and particularly BC Hydro of a, of a kind of a systemic bias in their uh, calculation on what the eventual needs for the province will be around, uh, around electricity. Why do you think there is this bias? Well, uh, since I, I've lived and breathed uh, at utilities for so many years, I have some familiarity. I think there is an inherent bias because uh, uh, not that we don't have honest uh, individuals who are trying to do their best job of forecasting the future, but as, as we know quite well, uh, it's very difficult to, to forecast uh, 10 or 20 years uh, into the future, and there are so many uncertainties. Uh, but I think there is a, a kind of engineering professionalism involved of wanting to build projects, and uh, I've seen it uh, not only at BC Hydro, but at the other utilities I've mentioned, a kind of, uh, of escalating or exaggerated load forecasting for the future. And when you check, uh, I guess this can always be verified by the facts. When you look at BC Hydro's past forecasts, they've been wrong. When you look at uh, Manitoba Hydro's, they've been wrong, and so on and so on. And, and I think... Uh, load forecasting for the future is very, very difficult. That, that's admitted. But at the same time, uh, I think there is this exaggeration or enhanced uh, view of uh, what is required. And uh, as a result, uh, you have overbuilt and uh, therefore costly rate increases take place once the capital expenditures that are, that are made have to go into the rate base. Uh, why I think there's a systemic uh, bias there. Fair enough. And in addition to challenges around load forecasts, based on your experience and in this brief, you also mentioned that mega projects like Site C tend to come in over budget with lots of delays. Do you think that it's 
it's a matter of reality and fact that we could see delays in a, in a budget that goes above $9 billion? Well, I've, I've, I've argued quite strongly that I believe uh, this project, which started at $6.6 billion, and now the current estimate is around $9 billion, will go to, their high probability will go to $12 billion. And I do this not because I have a magic wand or I can predict uh, with that kind of specificity the future, but I look at a number of factors that are taking place. One, uh, hydro stations currently being built in the rest of Canada. Uh, we got two that have been, uh, that are still in construction. Sorry, one completed in Manitoba, which went 50% over budget. Another one that's currently being built called the kiosk uh, uh, generating station uh, that is 34 35 percent over budget you got in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, the Muskrat Falls one which again is still in construction and uh, that is 71 percent over budget when you look at uh, BC Hydro's own experience in building large transmission lines re recently I identify four major ones in which they've been extremely over budget and Finally, when I look at the nature of this of, uh, of experience in project management, uh, Utilities Canada used to build a lot, and they had in-house a lot of experience. Uh, all the utilities I've mentioned, including BC Hydro, have not built a, a large generating station in the last 20 or 25 years, and therefore the expertise that, that resided there uh, has since retired or moved on. And I, I see that, I see the development of that taking place with Site C uh, in, the, in the civil contract that's been awarded. Uh, one of the firms that are associated with the $1.7 billion uh, civil contract is now in receivership. Uh, this clearly has to impact in some way the cost and the, the schedule. Uh, so for all these reasons, uh, I don't think it, uh, I think I, I think the project will be way over budget, and I don't think the ratepayers of this province can afford that kind of uh, exaggerated uh, hydro station uh, cost in the future. Mark Ellison's our guest. He's the former president and CEO of BC Hydro. We're talking about the Site C project. Mark, we've had other critics of the project on before. Uh, Karen Baker, in, in particular, who was leading some of the research into the economics, uh, the business model for the project. Um, of course, had people like uh, Andrew Weaver and others on on the program too. What do you think the BC Utilities Commission should use as its criteria in order to make the recommendation back to the government? Well, I, I do mention uh, in my paper uh, to do a thorough review on this matter requires an exercise of 12 to, uh, to 18 months. Yeah, uh, not, that's not, not 90 days, right? So, yeah, yeah, That's right. So, but so you're, you're going to have to give your best guesstimate on the basis of what you, you see has taken place in the past, what has taken place in other jurisdictions, uh, and, uh, and make, uh, uh, make a best, best guesstimate. Uh, I think the evidence that I have presented to the commission is the kind, are the kind of areas at least they should be looking at in order to come with their recommendation uh, to government. Uh, I just do not see, uh, given the financial duress that uh, BC Hydro is in as a, as a result of other policies, which I have mentioned in my paper, that uh, the BC ratepayer, uh, both business and uh, uh, commercial and residential, can afford a Site C in the future. Yeah, in your brief, you call the financial situation facing BC Hydro an unmitigated disaster due to uh, changes in regulatory oversight, changes in the marketplace. Where does that leave BC ratepayers generally? 
Well, uh, quite frankly, uh, the rates that should have been, should have been charged uh, for quite a number of years have not been charged. And, and uh, basically, uh, BC Hydro, through dividend policy, through the deferral accounts, through the uh, expensive uh, independent power projects, the IPPs, which uh, BC Hydro is obligated uh, now to pay in the future, that uh, there's going to be, and I don't have an instant solution to that. All, all I do know that is the fiscal integrity of uh, BC Hydro is at risk. Now, when that takes place, that means the fiscal integrity of the province is at risk because they guarantee the debt of BC Hydro, which has increased from 8 0.1 billion in 2008 to roughly over 20 billion today. Uh, so these are uh, quite uh, significant uh, financial uh, metrics that uh, that uh, the board and uh, the government will have to deal with in the future. Uh, but one of the things they don't and shouldn't be dealing with is a uh, a uh, hydro station that is going to cost, uh, whether you accept BC Hydro's estimate of 9 billion or my estimate of 12 billion. Uh, we don't, ratepayers shouldn't have to face that as well. Marcus, you, you'd be very familiar with what the proponents of the project are saying. First of all, that, that perhaps the, uh, the estimates, um, of our, of our capacity needs are, uh, are a little off because, you know, after all, we're entering this era of electric cars and so on. And the second one being, look, there are, um, there are 2000 jobs up there, uh, 2000 jobs that have to be, uh, have to be dealt with. Uh, do you think this government has the um, the courage to accept a recommendation from the commission that would say uh, stop the project. Well, the, the government made an announcement, which was the, the promise they made during the election campaign that to uh, to do what the previous government had not done, that is, refer uh, the whole matter to the British Columbia Utilities Commission for an independent, uh, impartial, objective evaluation. Uh, the minister responsible has indicated that when they receive the report uh, from BCUC, they will look at the report. They will look at other matter, matters which the uh, commission uh, was not mandated to do. That is the environmental uh, effect, the impact on agricultural land, First Nation rights, uh, and other uh, significant areas, and uh, make a decision. And I, I certainly don't want to prejudge that decision. I do know that... Uh, uh, this is not a job creation kind of project. In fact, we will lose more jobs if uh, if the station goes ahead because the impact of electricity costs on widespread, on commercial and industrial throughout this province will be far more uh, impacting the job market uh, with businesses no longer being competitive and job losses taking place than the amount of limited construction jobs that uh, take place in a, in a four or five year period. Mark, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Mark Ellison. He is the former president and CEO at BC Hydro. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. So Haley, what you're telling me is uh, Site C uh, controversial, right? Oh, highly controversial. And actually, uh, Mark Ellison, he's just one of many people who have submitted to the inquiry underway. You can read them all up online at the BC Utilities Commission website. But very strong opinions, both for and against the project. Okay. Uh, well, we've got an event coming up at BIV in a few weeks' time. Uh, this is something we're calling brokers and bankers because you have a choice for your money, and uh, we need to find out what the wisest path is. And so if you invest through a bank, 
or should you invest through a broker? It's a debate that's been raging and about which choice offers the greatest gain, the least risk, or maybe the most ample return. So on October 26th, Business in Vancouver, it's going to bring together leaders on each side of this discussion. And they're going to argue their cases on where your money belongs in an investment. So join us at Van City Theatre for what we expect will be a pretty entertaining and engaging battle over the direction of investment and what it actually means for you. Uh, it's going to be moderated by Kirk LaPointe, and we're going to have uh, panelists including uh, Ron Batty. He's a partner over at MNP. Benjamin West, he's a VP and regional manager at uh, National Bank Financial. A couple other people. It's going to be a delightful time. So, Haley, uh, if anybody wants to find you on social media, what's the best way? They can connect with me at Haley Wooden, H-A-Y-L-E-Y-W-O-O-D-I-N, and Twitter is probably best. What about you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. And you can go to BIV.com to find uh, my stories and Haley's stories. And we got videos, podcasts, radio shows. Uh, the whole you, shebang. The whole shebang. There. You'll be missing out if you don't go <laughs> visit BIV.com. Thank you very much.